So some common blind spots that prevent people from being successful. I think uh, some people say, what is the main mistake that salespeople make? And I think it's it's not listening. And I think they're not tuned into what's going on. And so you talk about blind spots. Sometimes the blind spots are very apparent, but the salespeople are too busy with their own scripts and worrying about doing things their own way to, to tune in on what uh, their, their prospect or customer is saying to them. So I think that's that's a serious issue. Well, it's interesting because listening uh, isn't taught. Questioning is very badly taught. Storytelling, almost nothing. The presenting side of things and answering questions, no one really teaches you to answer questions well. And you know, I, I was always taught to answer a question with a question. And that works to a point. But the reality is people just get really pissed off with you. And you have to answer at some point. So why not just do a really good answer? Because it's not likely that they're going to ask you an original question. And in all your years, decades in sales, have you ever been asked an original objection? Yes, but that, but it's rare. But and, and you're correct. I think if you answer questions with a question, then I think I, I find that very insulting, to personally insulting. And I try to sell to people the way I want people to sell to me. And and I think that's actually a very simple lesson, and, and some salespeople miss that. But one of the differences between me and the other uh, more than 1,000 other sales trainers in, in the marketplace is that when, when these salespeople have training sessions, and I've been to many, many of them, and they're all good. There are a lot of really good sales trainers out there, and they all have very interesting ideas and nuggets. But every training session that I've been into, what they'll do is let's they'll say, well, let's talk about objections, how to handle objections. And the way the session will go is the trainer will say, well, if they say this, then you say this. And if they say that, then you say that. And if this goes this way, then you go that way. And my theory is completely the opposite of that. My theory is that you welcome objections, you listen to objections, you respect objections, you try to understand where they're coming from, you be patient and and, uh, hear them out, and then don't try to counter the objection. Try to go back to the prospect and say, okay, I understand that this this is bothering you. Uh, Let me explain why we do, do things this way or let me explain how we can handle what you want. Or maybe I didn't do a very good job of explaining how what the value proposition of our product or service is. In other words, take the blame for that. Instead of insulting them and saying, well, obviously you aren't listening to me because I explained to you that, that we really have a good product. Or, you know, you dummy, if you if you were listening to me, you would have understood that I explained this, you know, two hours ago to you. So the whole concept of uh, fighting objections and trying to neutralize them to me is obsolete. It's disrespectful and uh, it should be uh, thrown in the garbage can, the trash can. The reality is that most objections occur in my experience, in my sales, because of something I've said or done or failed to say or do. Nine times out of 10, I created the conditions for someone to object. 
because I gave them cause to be uncertain. I gave them cause to see me as somehow as a threat. And typically it's because I became selfish in the sale. I focused on my features, my functionality. Uh, I was more interested in hitting my quota. And nine times out of 10, when we uh, diagnose what's going on uh, in a sale and we find it stalled, or there's someone who's being particularly obstructive uh, or ghosting you, then more often than not, it's because the seller hasn't listened and hasn't really paid attention to what's not being said. And it's that discomfort, it's that fear that if I make this decision, what's interesting is probably after the first, maybe the second meeting, certainly after the demo, they don't need to know another thing about your features and functionality, if they ever did anyway. At that point, they're just catastrophizing in their head. They're thinking of all the things that can go wrong, and justifiably so, because they've seen what happens when salespeople push and when bad purchases have been made or when purchases have been made that haven't really been thought through and they're a, a point solution to a, a complex problem and you throw money and technology and people at the problem and you end up wasting an enormous amount of effort for very scant results. I agree with you. I think the idea that you create objections yourself, it's true most of the time. And salespeople have a tendency not to own that. They try to place the blame for that back on the, on the prospect or buyer. If the prospect says, well, wait a minute, I, I don't think your product is a good fit or I don't see how it, it can handle the, you know, what we want it to do. I mean, whose fault is that? It's a salesman's fault possibly because they really didn't take the time to understand what what the the, uh, the buyer was really trying to do what their what their business was about and and the problem they were trying to solve and the second thing and I think you touched on this as well is that when salespeople have a conversation with the prospect and the prospect is they've asked the prospect a question the prospect is then responding and, and rather than listening to their response, the salesperson is thinking about the next thing that they're going to say. So what I've told salespeople is take 10 seconds, listen to what they're saying. Don't worry about your response. Listen to what they're saying and then think about your response after you've heard them completely and then try to understand what they're, you know, what they're explaining to you. But as you say, the salespeople have a tendency, many salespeople, for sure the underperforming ones, to not recognize some issues or objections that may be stated or not stated in a meeting. So a lot of times, like I would have a meeting with a salesperson, I'd say, how is, how is this, uh, this deal going? And they'd say, oh, it's wonderful. Well, how do you know it's wonderful? Well, because when I go to, the, to meet with them, they're nice to me and they smile. They're very courteous, and then they invite me back another time. And I go, well, have you accomplished what you're, what you're trying to accomplish in the meeting? And they go, no, but they're very nice to me. I had a, an experience when I was uh, very young and naive, and I was going to turn up for my fifth time to meet a prospect. And it was about a 120-mile trip to go and see them each way. And it was my car, my fuel, and all that. 
And I phoned up and I asked them, I'd finally worked out the question, which is, help me understand something. Where are you in your buying decision? Are you gathering information? Are you trying to define the requirements? Or are you at the point where you're ready to select a partner? I said, oh, we're gathering information. And I was going to do a 240-mile round trip for nothing, because what they really liked were my decks. And that was a really valuable moment as well, because I learned that people value the information, but you need to understand that there's a quid pro quo. If you're going to provide them with certain information that is valuable and is going to help them advance their understanding, there needs to be something back in return in terms of openness or transparency or vulnerability and you know, willingness to share confidences. You know, stuff like that, you, what you're doing all the time is trying to test the relationship and the strength of your credibility in their eyes. I think far too uh, few salespeople have the patience or uh, are allowed the time to develop the patience to do things the right way. Everything's very transactional. Yes. What I've recognized is that sales has become much more difficult over time in the last few years. And then certainly since the pandemic, it's been altered radically because the prospect not only will not meet you in person anymore, but they limit the amount of time that you, they'll spend with you. So it makes it much more difficult for the salesperson to develop a really positive, trustful relationship with the buyer. And to me, I don't think I've ever made a sale where I didn't build a trusted relationship with them. It's much more difficult now because of the limited access. Today, my guest is Steve Weinberg. Steve runs Steve Weinberg Sales. Uh, he was formerly at Acuity, which is part of the big, huge publishing conglomerate, Reed Elsevier. And uh, he very sensibly retired just before COVID. And he's written a, a fine book called Above Quota Performance. Now, tell me this, Steve, there's so many reasons why people fail to hit quota. And one of them that really drives me insane is over-assignment. What's your view on this? Should um, the CEO and the CFO have the same number as the sales team? I'm sorry, does the CEO and the CFO have the same number? Is that was your question? Should they? Should they? Because quite often, the number, right. if you add up all the quotas of salespeople, right. it comes to 120 or 170 or 300% of whatever the number is that they claim the target is. And I'm curious to start with about how quotas should be assigned. Should everybody be fully aligned around the same number and you know they put the time and thought into the territories? Or is it okay to arbitrarily say, we're going to increase revenues quota by 20% this year uh, and everybody has to increase it that way? What I have found is typically quotas are assigned top down so that the, uh, the CEO or the board will get together and say, this is what our, we want our earnings per share to be this year or our profit after taxes. And then uh, let's say what, what that number is. Let's say that's $100 million. Last year, we did $85 million. So we've got to increase uh, roughly uh, 20% over last year. So then they go to the uh, VP of sales and say, okay, your quota now is that, you know, we want you to sell $100 million in new business. 
And the VP of sales will then meet with the sales managers and usually allocate that. If they're smart, they'll allocate it at least uh, you know, a minimum of 120% so that they're, if, if somebody doesn't reach quota, they're still protected. But what I've seen in many cases is that they'll allocate it at 100%. So they'll split up the $100 million among the salespeople. And the problem with that, well, there's two problems with that. One is it doesn't recognize what the salesperson's ability is to perform. What did they do last year? What is their experience level? And is it, does it make sense? If somebody did 600,000 in sales last year, can we ask them to do a million? Is that a practical request to do? Is that, or are we fooling ourselves? And the other thing is it doesn't allow for any turnover of salespeople. Where I was recently at, if if I lost one or two salespeople out of 20, it severely impacted my ability to hit my number as a team number for the year. Because let's say they each one had a million dollars and somebody left the company in March. Well, if they left the company in March, they probably weren't doing well. So they don't have many sales in. And then it takes me two months to find somebody at best. And then it takes me three or four months to train that person and onboard them. And then it takes them six months before they build a, a new pipeline because the person who left made sure that there wasn't anything in the pipeline when they left. So that pretty much decimated my chance to, to have that person be productive that year. So when it comes to the sales quotas, they have to be realistic from the bottom up. And that could mean then you can't ask somebody who's who comfortably year after year does 600,000 to do a million. So what you may have to do is add salespeople, which the current salespeople don't like because that usually means that uh, it, they have a lesser territory. But that's sometimes what you need to do in order to hit a number that is normally prepared top down. Well, more often than not, salespeople hog accounts. They have far too many for them to give any real uh, attention. And a really good practice, in my opinion, is to cut the number of accounts uh, rather than increase it and have them focus on ones that are accounts that we really want to win and go deep and go wide in those accounts and actually think into the medium and the long term. Don't constantly fixate on the short term. If if you're always focused on the short term, you don't have any resilience in the pipeline. And your salespeople are always selling scared. And that leads to all sorts of complications. And you've touched on, you've hinted on to the cost of a bad hire. You You could lose a year's worth of sales. And that salesperson costs you the price of a mortgage to hire and to run. Now you've got all that uncertainty because you don't know whether they're going to work out in the role. It just creates more and more complication. So my question is this, why is it that managers are not better trained to recruit predictively, to be able to identify candidates who are likely to succeed in the role more effectively, uh, and that seem to be so overly dependent on cutting and pasting the last job description that they used to hire the person who just left or got fired. And then they spend very little time really on coaching and on boarding. The ramp up is it's rushed. It tends to be about product. What's going on there? You, 
you know, you've got brilliant asset who you want to be successful, get better and stay for a very long time. And you set them up to fail and they turn over every 12 to 14 months. I think part of the issue you touched on earlier is that most management is is very short-term oriented. They're more worried about this quarter and this year, but more this quarter than anything else. And they'll sacrifice the year just to make a number for this quarter. And then they have to do, go through a another panic session next quarter and the quarter after that, rather than recognizing that in the long term, it's better to hire the, the right salespeople and be patient and understand that it will take them a while to be productive. And to me, the best case scenario is that when you hire someone that they don't go on quota, that they spend six months or so training, going out with the best salespeople, learning what they need to know before they get on quota, or perhaps put them on a reduced quota. But I've only seen in the companies that I've worked with, I've only seen that happen one time. Normally what they do today is they hire the person on Friday and on Monday they're on quota. And they give them maybe three or four days of onboarding. They spend one day in HR learning what the the benefits are of the company and filling out forms. Then they spend one day with the product manager and one day with their own salesperson, and then off they go. One of the things that I always wanted to do is pair the new people up with the high performers so they could see see what how the high performers perform so that they could maybe mimic them and try to do you know the the what they do in order to be successful because it's obvious that they're doing something right and it would be good to pass that on to the new people but the most sales managers have the patience of a starving lion they have to have their next meal and they'll sacrifice in order to do that and they'll also in my opinion they'll terminate salespeople that could possibly work out because they're taking a little bit longer than a sales manager wants in order to be fully productive. And I've seen that happen a lot too. And they pay attention to metrics that seem to be mostly meaningless. I had a client who got fired from a role despite being on target in his probation period, but they fired him because he wasn't doing enough demos. Now, how insane is that? For sure. I mean, and I, I saw it again in my last job, one of the people that was fired by my by my manager left the company and he went on to another company in a similar business uh, competing against them. I actually saw him this past weekend and he's made his president's club three years in a row. You know, well, why is that? Did he suddenly get really, did he get much better as soon as he was fired? No, he, he had the skills all along, but maybe the newer company may have been a little bit more patient and maybe they had a better onboarding process, and maybe they had a better sales enablement function to support him. I mean, you've touched on so many really important and interesting things, which is that your sales function is part of an organic entity. And there needs to be alignment across marketing, across the lead generation function, whether it's SDRs or whatever, AEs, customer success, account growth and account management teams, product teams. There needs to be alignment with legal, with finance. All these different moving parts affect the customer's experience. And what seems to have been massively overlooked as we got greedier 
and more selfish in our sales motions is that what, what the customer wants is outcomes. That's what they're paying us for. They don't give a damn about our product and they certainly don't care who our investors are. They don't care about our quota. And salespeople have to spend more time actually listening to what the customer is trying to accomplish. And then they'd probably end up with much bigger sales. Certainly been the case for me. I agree. And in one of the chapters that I have in my book, I call it the real why, the W-H-Y, the real why. When a salesperson came back to me after a meeting with the customer or prospect, I would say to them, well, what are they looking for? Well, they, you know, they want to do this, this, and this. And I go, well, why do they want to do that? And they would look at me and say, what do you mean, why? I go, what's the reason? What's the motive? What are they trying to accomplish? What is the timing? Who's behind this? Is there an executive pushing for this? I mean, what's the budget for it? You don't have to have a budget, but is somebody saying, I want to have this done this year? If not, you need to sell me on the fact that they're, they're ever going to buy from us. And the salesperson would normally just look at me in a, with a blank stare and say, well, you know, Steve, you don't understand. We've had really good meetings, okay? <laughs> and I've said, you know, if you, can't, if you can't tell me the real why behind their buying, then I don't, you know, I'm going to be very skeptical about your forecast because you forecasted this to close next month and I don't see that happening. I mean, you only have to look at the inaccuracy of the forecast and the frequency of deal slippage to recognize that there's uh, many things rotten in Denmark. When you look at the way most uh, most salespeople put their forecasts together, it's pretty much based on hope and guesswork because there is no substance because they've not spent the time to understand the customer's motivation to buy, to change, the cost of inaction. Uh, They don't understand the moving parts because they're so selfishly fixated on trying to hit quota and uh, talk about themselves and their product. They've never gathered any insight into why. I I had a client a couple of years ago who was operating in a manufacturing base and major, major opportunity. And they won it because they confronted the fact that when the deal had stalled, he recognized that there was something amiss and he couldn't quite put his finger on it. So we said, you know, we planned it. And um, he went back to the prospect and said, look, I'm sensing that there's something that's holding you back. Could it be this? And the prospect said, no, could it be that? And the prospect said, well, tell me a little bit more about that. And it turns out that another part of the business had had tried to do a similar thing a couple of years prior. And it had cost them millions because it had broken uh, the system and it was breaking the product. And all of that product then, after having been shipped, had to be recalled and it caused enormous brand damage. So they didn't want a repeat of that. And that was the underlying issue. And it would never have happened if the seller hadn't taken the time to be more self-aware. Because um, self-awareness is all about recognizing your impact on others. That's the starting point of self-awareness, isn't it? Yes. Again, you touched on another thing is that salespeople are trained to follow a process. And good salespeople will, you know, they have certain steps that they need to follow. What they don't understand and what they never learn 
is that the buyer also follows processes and that every buyer follows different processes. So if they don't take the time to understand not only the need that the buyer has, but also what the process is that they're going through, what steps are they going through in order to gather the information that they need before they make a decision. And most salespeople don't take the time to understand that. The other thing is that I, and I've seen this, and I consider this sales malpractice, where you go out and visit a, a prospect or a customer, and they say, well, before we start our meeting, how about if we take a tour of the factory? Or how about if we go to the company store? Or how about, you know, I give you a half an hour or an hour familiarization of the company? And I've seen salespeople turn that down. And that, to me, is sales malpractice particularly afterwards, after a meeting, they say, well, how would you like to go on a tour? And the salesperson says, no, thanks. I've got a flight to catch. So the more information that I learned about the, about the company the, that I was calling on and their business and their competition, the better I could serve them and provide solutions for them. I mean, if I could help them with a solution that helps them beat their competition, am I valuable to them? I think so. But if I'm just there to make a transaction, just to, to do a hit and run, just to sell and leave, first of all, I probably won't make the sale. And second of all, I won't build any relationship with them. What well, one very fine bit of advice that I was given about 20 years ago, so you know, probably about 15 years in, was when you leave a prospect's office, walk slowly. And before you turn the corner, look over your shoulder in case they're still watching and wave and then drive away slowly. You should never be in a rush when you're leaving because, again, it projects out completely the wrong message. How you turn up, your intent makes such a difference because what we're dealing with is the other human being's limbic system. Their amygdala is wired their gut is wired to pick up on any form of threat. And if you come across and your amygdala has been fired because you're stressed, you'll project out nervousness and des despair or some form right. of something's wrong. So there's fires off. And they're always on the lookout for a threat. So as a seller, I think our number one job has to be to give them a sense of certainty because they need to know that we are a safe pair of hands. And this comes through being clear about what to expect. And that gives them courage to make the decision. Because I don't think people fear change. What they fear is uncertainty. And with the future comes uncertainty. That's why they worry about it. That's why they catastrophize. So I'm really curious. It sounds to me like a lot of your process is about building trust. It's about consistency. It's about reliability. And it's about creating these moments of intimacy where you share confidences. Is that fair? Yes. You know, I don't think I'm the world's best salesperson. And I'm certainly not the world's best wordsmith. And maybe I'm the 1,000th best presenter uh, and, and certainly not one of the best ones in our company. But I think what I did very effectively was I built trust with the prospect. And I think I did that 
in a number of different ways. But I think, first of all, with my sincerity. Secondly, maybe out of respect, because I would respect their position. I respected their priorities. I respected their time. If they told me they had a half an hour, I didn't take 40 minutes or 45 minutes and uh, delay them. I would respect their process. If they told me that their steps were first this, then second, then third, I didn't try to go from first to seventh with them, so I respect that. I think I always try to be ethical. If I didn't see a good fit for the buyer, I would tell them. I absolutely had turned, I turned down sales where I said to, to the buyer, I just don't think we're a good fit for you. Because I didn't, you know, not only did I want to operate that way, but I didn't want to have to deal with an unhappy customer. That was, you know, perhaps part of that as well. I always felt my job was to solve their problem, not my problem. My problem was my quota, but my job was to solve their problem. I always wanted to provide value to them before the sale to give them information that they didn't already have on their own, something that I could uh, add to them. I wanted to learn their business. I wanted to become proficient in their business, learn their terminology. So that when they started throwing acronyms at me in meetings, I understood them because they will do that. Okay, that always happens. I wanted to ask great questions. Uh, so I would actually prepare questions ahead of time and bring what I would call cheat sheets with me. I always told salespeople, there's nothing wrong with having a little piece of paper in front of you to ask questions from. I think, I, I think that sends to... a message to your buyer that you've right. actually put some thought into it. And if you turn up prepared, and I've won business off the back of having a really good pre-meeting plan and having a structure in terms of what I believe we'd agreed the intended outcome was, identifying what kind of questions I thought they would want to ask me, what questions I wanted to get answered, because otherwise I couldn't move the conversation forward, likely objections that they're going to have and answers to uh, you know how they would push back, what actions or next steps I wanted to have happen, uh, what great ideal looks like, what acceptable looks like, worst acceptable, and my walkaway points. And people bought off the back of that plan because they wanted their people to do the same thing. I would always give the my contact and other people as part of the team, I would give them the agenda that I hope to cover in the meeting. I would ask them to alter it if they wanted to change it. And then I would try to, if I knew some of the questions that I needed information on, I would provide them the questions ahead of time so they could prepare answers and so that I didn't surprise them. And I never, ever, ever wanted to embarrass anybody on the team, especially in front of their boss in a meeting, because that is one way... Uh, talk about a sales killer. That's a that's one way to, to, you know, you could spend two years building a relationship and in five minutes you could destroy it. So, you know, you always want to make them look good. You don't ever want to embarrass them. And one way of doing that is to prepare them for the meeting and, and say, well, you know, Henry, this is what I'm going to ask you in the meeting. I'm going to, you know, are you, do you have information on this? Can you tell me what your product sales were last year for this product? Can you tell me what your biggest obstacles were? Where did your competition hurt you the most? How can I help you 
provide information that'll help you beat your competition. You know, things like this ahead of time, so that when I ask them that in the meeting, they don't look and and smile at me and say, well, we'll just have to get back to you. So when you do find that deals are stalled, what's the first thing one should do? That's a good question. When I find deals are stalled, like again, a lot of times I would ask the salespeople what's going on in this account, and they'd say, oh, it's going well. Well, what's progressed from the last time? Typically, what happens is the prospect stops returning your phone calls in a timely manner, and they go what I call radio silent. And there are a lot of reasons for that. A few of them are absolutely legitimate, no problem, like something of a higher priority came up or somebody was ill or there's a vacation or maybe the CEO wanted something else done immediately and it has to be pushed aside. So the salesperson needs to find that out. But more often than not, the prospect has already made a decision and they just don't want to tell you because they don't like the unpleasantness of giving bad news. I mean, nobody likes to give bad news, truly, right? Maybe the only one that I know of would be a mortician. So, I mean, the, I mean, Suela Braverman, she's our right. uh, home secretary. Right. So, so they'll avoid, I have found that people will do anything to avoid giving bad news. So, so a lot of times, if I haven't heard from somebody, if I'm calling them and, you know, they haven't returned my phone call or an email in two weeks, I will ask them, is there a problem? If they still don't answer, I will. I come out directly and say, "Have you already made a decision?" Then you more more than likely will get something back from either a voicemail because they won't call you, or an email saying, "Yes, we made a decision. We're going to go with the other guy." And then the other way that I found of finding out when they when they made a decision is when you call somebody up and they do get on the phone and they tell you what a great job you did. So, you know, the call goes like this. You know, the positive prospect. Hi, Mary. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great, Steve. By the way, Steve, I want to let you know you did a great job. You answered all my questions. You were very timely. We really enjoyed working with you. And they go on and on. And then I, and I go, wait a minute, Mary. You're telling me that I lost, right? You, you're going to go with the other people. It's and then they go, yeah, I don't know. Well, Mary, I've heard this before. So I understand that. So that's one clue. But I think going back to your question is when it stalls, it's very, very difficult to restart it. And it's very difficult, particularly if they're going in the other direction. The only way you're going to win them back is if there's if they find that there's a problem with the other guy. So, so one of the one of the ways that I will find is I'll say, you know, it seems to me that I haven't done a very good job. And what I like to do with you is maybe meet with you again for a half an hour to kind of recap our proposal and test it with you and find out you know, what you like and don't like about it. And sometimes if they don't want to meet with you and go over your proposal, they've told you they've made a decision that they're going with somebody else. And one of the hardest things that a salesperson has to do, and it's often the, dif- the uh, difference maker between a good salesperson and a great one, is to leave a prospect and go on to the next one to recognize that any more time you spend is wasted. That is really a difficult thing for many salespeople to do. It's really hard and it comes down to attachment in my experience. The Buddha was right. Attachment is the root to all misery. 
and he was right on the other front, which is life is full of suffering, but you don't have to uh, suffer all the time. And most of the suffering that I've experienced in my career has been utterly self-inflicted. And if it wasn't self-inflicted, it was inflicted by leadership and management who didn't know better. Or if they did, then they probably shouldn't have been in those roles. In my experience, salespeople are very often put under enormous pressure to bring deals forward, to do things that are counter to their values. But their fundamental human needs for significance, for feeling like um, they belong, for certainty, will cause them to override their values. And I'm really curious about your thoughts in terms of the kind of culture that you want to create so that salespeople behave the way you do. They're transparent, they're honest, they will walk away from bad business, they will tell the customer honestly and openly if they don't believe that they're a good fit. To have that kind of maturity and that kind of serenity to be able to do that, that takes experience, it takes courage, it takes a bit, um, quite a bit of business acumen to understand all those moving parts, to know that that is the right thing to do. You probably learned that over quite some time. How do you make sure that the next generations learn to do that so that they don't keep mimicking this vile parody that's basically show up, throw up, quote, hope, sell and run? Well, as I think as you say, it's, it's a, a matter of sales culture. I think it's the messaging that you get from the, your chief sales executive or your VP of sales, who obviously wants to hit their number, they're incented to hit their number, but they also need to explain to everybody that it's much more important to have satisfied, happy customers than to sell to, to customers that'll be very unhappy that will come back and cause you all kinds of problems later on. And in my experience, I've sold to the same person at three different companies several times. So they were at one company and I bought from me, then they, two or three years later, they went to another company and bought from me and then another company. The reality today is that people do move around a lot more than they used to. And salespeople need to understand that if they want to be in business for a long time in their chosen field, that it's in their interest as well as the company's interest to really discern what is good business and what is bad business and to really treat prospects and customers properly with respect and to be above board and ethical all the time with them. It's, it works out better for them. I think in most cases with companies, the top performers will operate that way, and a company needs to emphasize that this year, uh, Emily did a great job, and let me explain to you how she worked. So that message at a sales meeting of explaining sales successes and how they treated the prospect and customer, that message needs to go out to the sales force. I think also it's important that the, the culture reinforce to salespeople that they can explain to a prospect what they can do and what they cannot do so that they properly set expectations. So if they do buy from them, they're not surprised when the product comes in and doesn't do something that is critical to what their needs were. So I think that's really important. And 
one of the concepts that I would tell salespeople is that your job is to get the person you're working with, your contact, your job is to get them promoted. Yeah. And you get them promoted within their organizations by making this project successful. So you want to do all the things to help make it successful by setting the expectations right, by getting the information, by staying in contact with them, by having them meet with the right people, by providing them with all the information they need. And then that when that person gets promoted, you have a friend for life. You have a great reference. I believe very strongly in reference selling. I don't think I made one sale without a reference in my career. You know, I always said to, to a prospect, you know, I understand what you're looking for. You know, I work with this company, ABC. Recently, they had a similar problem as yours, and this is how I helped them solve it. And by the way, I can provide you with their contact information if you want to call them. So I always did that. I think that was really important. Okay. I, I would challenge not that you're able to provide a reference. The only thing I would say around that is I'm reluctant to have my customers have to do my job for me. So if there is a reference that is required, then it's the very last thing in the process. And the conditions for the reference are very clear because I don't want to waste my client's time. And if they're good enough to be willing to be my advocate, I want to make sure that the buyer is paying for my client's time by turning up and being properly prepared for that conversation. It's not a fishing trip. And so the condition is, if the reference meets the, um, the requirement, then it's an automatic go-ahead. And if it doesn't, it's an automatic, we end it there cleanly, and then we debrief. Yes, like you say, it should be maybe the last item on their checklist. And I think what they're looking for a lot of times at the end is just an assurance. You know, they've been talking to the salesperson. They've seen, they may have had a demo. They may have checked all the boxes that they think they needed to do. But perhaps if they talk to somebody it'll alleviate some of the concerns or risks that they have to know that that another company purchased from this one and it actually and the and the product actually did or the service did what it what the salesperson said it did so it's really just a matter of easing their mind at the end absolutely and again the step immediately before that in my world is that i need to establish is there something is there a stone that we have not turned over is there an underlying concern? Is there um, some history that I haven't uncovered? Because nine times out of 10, it's a deficiency in something in my process. Because what's happening is the customer is um, going through anticipated buyer's remorse. If I put my signature on this contract and it goes wrong, it's my head on the block. And in this day and age, especially now, it could be. That a career-ending move. Yeah, if they've got a, you know, a family or a mortgage to pay or whatever, and this is very real, and you're dealing with real human beings. Right. So as sellers, we need to humanize our approach. We need to think as our customer. When I'm working with partners, for example, I don't care. I know they don't really care about getting a 10 or 20% kickback for my fees. What they really care about is how do they sell more of what they already sell 
and they want to sell more of. So if I can help them sell more of that by bringing me in, then I'm a definite shoe in because that's how they make their living. So it's about yeah, so I agree with you. Yeah, it, it has to be it has to be in both parties' interests in order to do that. It can't just be in yours. Absolutely. So th- when they're thinking, they're catastrophizing and they're thinking, what could go wrong? Then you need to raise those issues and don't be afraid ever of raising objections. I can almost not remember the last time prospect or a buyer of mine raised an objection that I didn't raise before them. Because if I sense it, I'll tell them. I'll say, yeah, Steve, I'm sensing that there's something holding you back. Is it me? And I want to start with me because I know I rub a lot of people up the wrong way. So let's just get ahead of that. Then I want to find out, you know, is it the money? Is it the timing? Is there something else that they're working on? I need to understand what could be holding them back. Because if I can do that, then I can peel away the resistance. And often it just evaporates because what they wanted to be was understood. So uh, what I'd love to get to understand from you is um, how you train and develop your managers to develop their people. Because it sounds to me that the middle management layer is a catalyst. They have that responsibility to hire well and uh, create the conditions so their people can thrive. And it sounds to me like that's what you tried tried to do in your leadership roles. So I'm curious what you did to pass that on to your successors and the middle management layer who's responsible for the team targets. In the case of most corporations that I work with, they're very short-term oriented. And because they're short-term oriented, it works against what you're saying because all they care about are the results now. And if you're going through the process with, and I've seen them do this, let's say you have a 10-step sales process and you're on number seven and it's going well, sales per, sometimes a sales manager will say, well, I need to sale this month or I need it this quarter. So you go in there right now and tell them you got to get the sale done. Or you go in there and tell them if they do, the, if they sign now, I'll give them a 10% discount. Well, all these things work against that. And if 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 they had a more realistic outlook and let it take the time that it needs to go through the process, maybe by you know checkpointing the salespeople from time to time, I think it's a better way of doing it. And one of one of the more effective tools that I had as a sales manager, and I did this quite often, was the role play conversations with the salesperson before they went in to meet with somebody. I would say, okay, you're going in to see this company tomorrow, and I'm going to be their procurement manager right now, and I want to sit here and I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to answer them to me and actually make them go through that. And I found that to be very valuable because they were much better prepared to go into a meeting because I would go into the role of of maybe the antagonist or the protagonist and uh, and try to get them to understand that they need to to step up their game to 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 answer the questions better. Well, you've touched on something really important, which is preparation. Um, salespeople, because they are under so much pressure and they're fixated on short term stuff, and they're focused, very often their metrics are driving absolutely the wrong behaviors. You know, get me the number of meetings. Get me a number of demos. Right. right. Um, instead of are we moving the sale forward? 
And are we helping the customer advance their understanding? And are we aligning with their buying process and their buying journey? Because one of the things I see time and time again is uh, we've got a sales process and you've just touched on it there, you know, 10 step sales process. Well, the buyer doesn't follow your process. And yes. if you don't align with the buying journey, then you're going to create friction and dissonance and they're going to blank you or they're going to find you irritating. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. One of my clients uh, was being put under pressure to offer an 80% discount because they needed wow. a little bit more revenue and they wanted the logo. And two weeks later, because he resisted and he was smart, he got, got the deal in at 600 grand more than he would have if he'd agreed to what his manager was putting him under pressure to do. Now, in what universe does giving away 600 grand benefit the shareholder, benefit the customer, uh, benefit anybody? Because the customer who's buying on price is probably going to churn at some point very early. And they're probably going to be a pain in the neck because you haven't given them what they really wanted. They were never buying. If they're buying on price, Chances are they don't want most of what you're offering. They're using it to, as a workaround for something else very often. And also look at the message you're giving them. Yeah. The message that you're giving them as a salesperson is, I don't really care where you are in your sales process. And I don't care about solving your problems. What I care about is meeting by number this month. And I'm willing to give away the store in order to do that. I mean, that's the message. And uh, well, there's another worse message, which is I lied about my price. Right. And what's going to happen a year from now yeah. when they get another bill to maybe renew or maybe look at another product? Let's say they, a year from now, they want to look at another product. And then you go in there and they say, well, what's the cost of that? Well, the cost is 500000 OK, well, last time you gave me an 80 percent discount. So the cost is really only like 60000 right? Well, th th this is really interesting because with that guy... One of the things I remember now was they were constantly having pushback from customers after they uh, got sent a bill because they were using more data and they kept uh, being slammed with additional charges. So that was driving their churn rate. All of these things are tied together. So it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the vital necessity of having the CEO, the CFO, and the CRO completely aligned and understanding what is possible within the territories. I'm going to come back to that because I think it merits deeper uh, conversation, which is I think what we should be doing is having those three be clear about what we're trying to accomplish. Then we have to sanity check it with the managers who should be able to understand what's actually viable in their territory with those salespeople and the accounts that they have and the accounts that they're going after. Because if the territory can't yield that number, there's no point giving that to the shareholders because you're gonna come in below expectations and that's gonna damage your valuation. So it's better to get ahead of the problem. If you give somebody a number they can't achieve, first of all, you'll burst their morale. Secondly, they'll start looking for another job because salespeople want to achieve their number. It's very important. The best salespeople, by the way, all have high egos. And if they don't want to finish the year at 60 or 80% of quota, they want to be able to tell their friends and family they were 150% of quota. So if you give them a hopeless quota at the beginning of the year, they're, they're, 
salespeople are usually very smart. They'll say, well, I'm not going to make this number. So I need to find another job. So instead of paying attention to building a pipeline and going out and, and closing business, they're, you know, they're doing minimal activity for your firm while they're out looking for another one. So it is important to be realistic. And wouldn't it, isn't it better to, at the end of the year, have 80% of the sales team achieve their number than 30 or 40%? Doesn't that create a much better climate? Yeah, it does. But my, my, this is um, something that's been bothering me. And maybe with your recent experience, you can uh, shed some light on it. In the last seven years, we've seen quota attainment halve from around 60% average quota attainment to, below, uh, to around 30% this year. At the same time, we've seen this massive explosion in technology, in data, in automation, in ad spend, all of this stuff. And it just seems to have created more noise, more friction, and more distance. And it seems to have done nothing but damage relationships or distance seller from buyer. What's your sage advice to leaders who are thinking about trying to solve these problems by throwing bodies and technology at the problem? I think unless you have the, the right culture and attitude, the bodies and technology would be like, putting a motor on a cat and asking the cat to run 100 miles an hour. You can't do that. It won't work. And you're, you're, you're solving the wrong problem. The pro your problem is really preparing your organization for success and not by going out and buying the latest gizmo that will help them maybe in a short term because There'll always be another one beyond that one, by the way. The one that they buy now in six months will be out of date. So it's better to, to have the building blocks in place for success than to try to do it the other way, the short-term way. So talk to me about those building blocks for success. It's all It all boils down to people, right? So you have to have the right people. You have to have the right sales managers. You have to have the right salespeople. In my book, I go over 30 traits to, to use when hiring salespeople that people can look for. Today, by the way, there's roughly anywhere from 40 to 60% of the salespeople will fail in a year, and companies accept that as a given. You know, why, why would you accept that? You know, why is the CEO of a company willing to have the VP of sales tell them every year that only half of our salespeople hit quota? That's wrong. I mean, in what business and what anything does a 50% sales success rate work? So we need to figure out health and we... safety. Only yeah. half our only half our staff were killed or maimed. You're yeah. on it. It's in line with industry standards. Right. Yeah, I'm going to see a heart surgeon today, and he's going to tell me, you know, half of my patients made it off the table. Do you feel comfortable coming in and having me do the operation? You know. <laughs> We need to look at that from a holistic point of view and say, like you say, are the quotas realistic? Do we have the right people? Do we have the right sales training in, in place? Do we have a sales enablement function? Do we have the patience to bring on people and train them before we put them on quota? Do we coach them while they're working? Do we offer them advice, not just the low performers, but also the high performers? Do we make it easier for the high performers to, to, to close sales? 
Do we push down a block uh, any objections to, to or hurdles that they have to to go over in order to achieve their numbers? I found to me that when I looked at you know where do I put my time. It was better for me to put my time with the high achievers on the low achievers because these people not only wanted me to help them, but their productivity would increase where the low people resented when I came, you know, came around to look to work with them because they thought I was looking to fire them. And some of them would never make it anyway. So we need to look at everything that we have. Are our processes right? Is our pre-sales function working well? Do we have the right people in it? Do we have the right marketing collateral, the right marketing strategy? Recently, I was asked to help bridge the gap between the marketing and sales function in a company. And I told them I could answer it. I could fix it in 10 minutes. And they looked at me and they said, how could you possibly do that? And I said, it's very simple. You put the sales VP and the marketing VP on the exact same compensation plan. They get paid exactly the same way. So if it's based on sales or marketing activity or how well the website is or, or brand awareness, they're, all, they're both compensated the same. And then they'll speak with each other, they'll help each other, and you'll see their functions work better. And they looked at me and they said, wow, that's a radical idea. And I went, well, you know, I think it'll work. Well, you're dealing with human beings and human beings are motivated by what motivates them, not what motivates you. And unless you can find a way of tying their personal motivations to your business goals, then chances are their motivation will uh, be on their personal objectives, not your objectives. And that's why you get salespeople sandbagging. And that's why you get salespeople not putting stuff into the CRM and hiding it just in case and, um, you know, uh, trying to, um, you know, own accounts to block other salespeople. You know, you, you've got to, start dealing with human beings as human beings they're not a utility they're not these uh, they're not robots yeah exactly right. steve sadly we've come to the uh, time and this has been a fascinating conversation i'd love to have you back partly because i disagree with you over that last bit uh, about recruitment but we don't we definitely don't have time to do it now which is a real shame so we'll dig into that the next time um, okay how can people get hold of you People are motivated by a lot of different things. Companies make the mistake of believing that salespeople are only cash motivated. You know, I found that if you ask the high performers to list what's important to them, that their earnings will come in around number seven or number eight. It's, it's you know, number, okay, it used to be number six when I was a headhunter. Yeah, number one will be achievement. They want to be recognized as a top achiever. That is number one. They want to be put on the stage at the sales meeting, given recognition in front of their peers. They want to be able to tell their families that they're number one or two in the company. They want to go on the sales trip and they bring their spouse. This is their number one. To me, I found people would do amazing things in order to, to be number one in the company. So that's that is number, that's the first thing. But the other motivating factors as well are people, they want to be happy in their jobs. They want to be treated well. They want to be respected. They, they want to like where they're working. They, they want to like what they're selling. They want to believe. They want to have, you know, you want them to have empathy for the, for the prospect so that they're very happy when they, 
when the prospect does well. And, you know, whether it's, whether compensation is six or seven or eight, it's important, but it's not the most important. Almost never the most important. And the people who are motivated by money, I'm not sure I really want them on my sales team going out meeting customers. Because if that's their primary driver, looking after the customer's best interest won't be. And that's a big, big challenge as far as I'm concerned. Actually, it's a red flag. Okay, your best mistake. My best mistake? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about on references before. One time I was very eager to give a reference. I was out selling. This was really early in my sales career, not late. And I was selling somebody that had a different hardware configuration than 99% of the other companies in the market. They were using a Burroughs computer. I don't know if you remember that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And I had one company that I had sold to that was using a Burroughs computer. So I said to them, you know what? I think what you need to do is contact this other company that I sold to that had a Burroughs computer, and they'll make you feel very good that our product works on the Burroughs computer. What I didn't do was check back before I gave their name to see how happy or unhappy they were. That was a huge mistake, (laughs) a huge mistake. And I never made that mistake again, because what happened was I lost the sale. And when I called them up and I said, well, wait a minute, you know, why, you know, I thought, I thought you liked what we had. And he said, oh yeah, I like what you had. Everything was really good until I called that company up and they told me that what you have doesn't really run well on a Burroughs computer. And I went, really? And he said, yeah. Well, it turned out the agreement that I had with the original company was that I told them it didn't run on a Burroughs computer and they agreed to convert it to work on a Burroughs computer and return the product back to us in in return for compensation. So the fact that it didn't run well on a Burroughs computer was something that we knew about early on. We told them about it and they said they would fix it. But they then told this, uh, my prospect that it didn't work on the Burroughs computer and I lost the sale. So from that point on, I made sure that before I gave any name, I called the company immediately before I gave them out. And I said, I would like to give your name out as a reference. You know, how is everything? You know, is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you with anything that you have going on right now? I would take their temperature, make sure they were okay with it, and then give their name out. So that was my probably my best mistake. I learned from that. I never did it again. It was very stupid, and uh, I just was overeager. Yeah, but, but made similar sort of uh, gaffes myself. How can people get hold of you, Steve? What are your contact they details? Can, they can get a hold of me through my website. It's probably the easiest. It's www. Steve Weinberg Sales, that's S-T-E-V-E. Weinberg is W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. Sales, one word, stevewineberg.sales.com. Excellent. Steve, thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Marcus. I hope to speak with you again. I look forward to it. I hope you have a great Christmas holiday and a happy new year. And I look forward to speaking with you in the new year. Likewise. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. 
And if you want to talk about coaching, either with me or with Steve, then please get in touch with us. There's a link to all of Steve's contact details in the show notes. And there's a link to grab 15 minutes with me to talk about coaching and training as a preliminary call. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.